Brilliant. Um, today is a bit of a tale of two Ians, so I'm going to invite the first Ian uh, up, uh, our painter, our artist in residence, Ian uh, Campbell, and there's a little microphone for you, just to um, get a bit of a feel for how you found um, kind of coming to this, this painting, I guess, particularly when it comes to the process, maybe to begin with, how, how was um, kind of piling all this together, any sort of standout moments in the midst of all that um, this time? Uh, I don't know. How are we getting it? What's the button you press? I can never... Oh, thanks. <laughs> that, that, that makes life slightly easier. Um, the process, boy, um, on one level, this was quite uh, technically a straightforward painting to do because, you know, there's, there's a portrait of a mum and a baby dead easy. That's quite a conventional portrait. Um, and it was really interesting working on it because people would often come up and they would say, oh, oh that's lovely. Look at the wee boy. Oh, and, and then knowing about the other paintings and they would ask, oh, what, what passage of the Bible is that one? And um, I, I posted a, an in-progress photograph uh, of of the, uh, of the painting on, online a while back. And um, there's a, a minister I know, uh, Colin Bruff, and he'd uh, commented to me, in, in an instant you've uh, turned my uh, decades long perceptions of um, what age the, the woman from this parable would have been and, and the kind of struggles that she would have been going through could be, and of course that's uh, that's one possible scenario. Um, it's it's interesting thinking about the the passage uh, with that. You know, we're looking at a woman who's up against the legal system, and this is what Jesus says: prayers like it's like a woman fighting against the legal system. Um, we, uh, we live uh, in, a, in a house in Govan, and um, it's, it's kind of interesting, We'd, when, uh, when you're a student and you live in a flat and, you know, you're kind of choosing to live somewhere on the, on the subway line, and, and, and we did that, and uh, Ibrox and Govan was a bit cheaper than the West End, um, but half the price if anyone's looking for a flat. Uh, so we, we, we moved in there, um, and then when it, all of a sudden, us and all our contemporaries start having children of our own. And at that point, lots of our friends uh, moved out to the suburbs uh, because, and, and you know, folks are looking often for somewhere that's got a nice school uh, and, and all those, those, those kind of things. Um, something that was really important for Amanda and I was thinking, well, what, what kind of how do we actually want the kids to grow up? Um, and we, we made decisions about continuing to live in the greater Govan area uh, and trying to be part of uh, regeneration there. One, and I'll, we, we had lots of different ideas about what that might look like. At one point we thought, maybe, maybe we can be part of some kind of church plan or something here. And actually it became a lot simpler as, as, as time went on, and it became about several important relationships. Um, and, and one was 
a lady that Amanda got to know at the school gates. Um, let's call her Jane. Uh, so Jane had uh, four kids. <sighs> You'll note the past tense. <laughs> um, she she had uh, four kids uh, with her, and we we got to. It took it took about two years of conversations for Amanda to get to come round for a cuppa, and and we knew that she had uh, a lot of different struggles in life, um, and. Uh, Bit by bit, we we got we got to know her and our and our kids. Um, and at one point, the the kids were taken into care. And the, then, if you're wanting to really be alongside people, uh, and you you kind of get to know folks deeply, and you care about the situations that they're in. Um, then you end up in situations where uh, Amanda was uh, with Jane going along to hearings with social work, and you start to get to see the difficulties of uh, a legal system which is stretched to capacity, and people don't have the time that they really want to, to put into things. So, you know, there's a lot of things that fall through the cracks in, in the legal system. And I would really, really like to tell you that there's a happily ever after ending to that story, but there's not, because Jane never got her kids back, and all four of them remained in, in foster care, and, and two of the girls are, um, are, are adults now, so you know, years roll by. I'm very painfully aware, and was very painfully aware, working on this painting, what persistence looks like. Um, and to have walked alongside a family that, where someone is for a number of years really trying their hardest, working against the legal system to get our kids back, knowing that Jesus has described this idea of a woman fighting the legal system as his picture of prayer, to be able to paint a story where there's a happy ending to that, um, was uh, an absolute delight for me. And, and delightful to see so many people come up to me and just reveling in how happy a painting that looks. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, my other kind of question, which you've actually probably sort of touched on a little <laughs> yes, bit <sir>. already, <laughs> but was just about the, the passage itself. Like, how did you find this as a passage kind of coming to it? Was it, like, how do you even come to the choice of such a passage or that sort of thing? How did you find that sort of side of things, the actual scripture bit of it all? Um, it's, it's an interesting one because um, trying to, uh, looking at a passage like that, and Alistair and I talked about this a lot, and what... Um, it, the, the passage specifically talks about a widow, and uh, I, we th we thought about that a lot, um, and, and and I thought about my mum because my dad had died um, four years ago, um, and uh, and actually, when it comes to being up against the legal system, actually, more or less my mum's okay. You know, the mortgage is paid off. Um, there's you know. She, uh, Life's not easy. Arthritis only gets worse. Um, you, you know, the, the years roll by, but she's doing okay. 
Um, and trying to think of a contemporary parallel for how, how do we express this? How, how do we uh, talk about someone who's uh, a vulnerable woman uh, hard up against the legal system? How, how, does that, uh, how does that look? And I think it was actually Alistair that, had, uh, that suggested Lizzie and Brodie being a painting. Thank you. Thank you for being in the painting. It, it means the world to me. Um, and, you know, to be able to connect with um, the folks that come in here, uh, and not just on a Sunday, through the cafe, uh, throughout the week, to be able to, to say, do you know, there's, there's situations that people often like to not talk about and sweep under the carpet. But actually, if you want to take what Jesus said into a contemporary context, this is what uh, Jesus is saying is a beautiful thing. This is what he's describing as being like prayer, the persistence of a mum like Lizzie. That's what prayer's like. Well, Ian, thank you very much um, for sharing that. I think one of the things that I always find remarkable when we come to these paintings is just how every single one of them, they have their powerful biblical context, but they also have just a very powerful everyday story as well. And, and relating the two together, you do a very wonderful job of. So, so thank you very much for that. Um, I think we're going to move on now to the next part of our story. I'll, can I steal this one? Thank you. Seriously, <laughs> I'll move back to this one. Um, so I'm now just going to invite up Ian McEwen, uh, our other Ian for, uh, for today. For those of you, just to give a very brief introduction, Ian is uh, uh, Pete's father. Many of you will know Pete uh, amongst here. He's also very kindly, actually, him and his wife, Edith, have actually very kindly given us uh, their house up in Anstruther a number of times where many quite significant um, sort of leader, leadership team and things decisions have been made at uh, much time in prayer. So very generously and very grateful for that too. But I won't say any more. I'll hand over to you. Thanks. It's good to be here. Um, one of the things that uh, one of the things that babies are really, really good at, and you're looking at a guy, father of four, but recently foster carer to a baby for a year. Um, what my wife did most of it—that's just a declaration. But one of the things that babies are really, really good at, and I'm looking here at Lizzie in the back there, is crying. Um, What's going on when a baby cries? Well, he or she is calling for attention. He or she is saying, feed me, change me, cuddle me, or perhaps even entertain me. Baby's cry is incredibly demanding. It pierces the ears. The cry is not designed to be ignored. And if you think your mobile phone is demanding, then try swapping it for a baby for a day and you'll discover um, what I mean. The book of Psalms is the Bible's prayer book. In the book of Psalms, we have a collection of 150 ancient poems. And I would say that all of them are more or less prayers. Some, like, some of them, like Psalm 13, are statements of anguish or pain or longing. Some are angry and questioning. Others are fearful. Many are joyful and hopeful. A few are penitent, while lots are full of praise and thanks for God's blessing in our lives. And if you want to get serious about praying, and prayer is the, is the place where our relationship with God is, is forged, then start by reading the Psalms as prayers. Now, I kind of decided to do something 
practical here. I think it's, um, I have here, just chuck these round because, and if you're interested, take a screenshot of it. It's just a whole set of life's kind of stuff like temptation, fear, um, joy, um, and a list of Psalms that really speak to those situations in life. So, if that's vaguely interesting and you wanted a kind of like um, index to the book of Psalms about where you are, take a screenshot of that and just file it away. It's a bit like, I'm feeling like this today, what Psalm would I read? That's what's floating around on these bits of paper. A lot of these ancient prayers, the Psalms, they talk about crying out to God. And our passage today, the parable of persistent widows, speaks directly into that deep tradition of prayer within Scripture. In verse 3 of Luke 18, we hear the widow's petition or prayer, grant me justice against my adversary. And actually, that sounds like a line straight out of the Psalms. Take, for instance, the opening words of Psalm 7. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or perhaps even better, the opening words of Psalm 43. Grant me justice, O God. Defend me from a faithless people, from, de from the deceitful and unjust rescue me. So, we're, we hear in what the persistent widow asked of the unjust judge, words that appear to come straight out of, of the, the traditions or the words used in the Psalms. Let's now pause and we'll read again that passage in Luke chapter 18. Then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said that in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused but finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with all her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Some of the parables, the stories that Jesus told are a bit obscure. Like, for instance, go two chapters back in the Gospel of Luke, you get to the parable of the shrewd manager, and you kind of read it and go, hmm, what's that about? But it's not like that here in Luke chapter 18. And the reason for this is that Jesus explains exactly what's going on. Jesus tells the disciples that He's going to tell them a story to show that they should always pray and not give up. It's exactly what it says on the tin. Most understandings of this parable, and not surprisingly, because Jesus told us that's what it's about, 
drowned it in prayer. And we have this contrast between the unjust judge and the righteous, benevolent Father in heaven. And in making the contrast, Jesus is saying, look, if this widow can get a result from this guy, the unjust judge, by being persistent, how much more goodness and grace and blessing can we expect from our Father in heaven? It's a pretty good point. I have a real and recurring problem with Ikea furniture. I never, ever take time to read the instructions before I start assembling it. Life is simply too short. And actually, to toot my own horn for a minute, I'm actually pretty darn good at putting it together. I often get really, really close to completion before it ever becomes a problem. As Callum said, a good number of you from here have been through in the house in Anstruther, um, and you may well go back there at some point. And if you're back, have a look at the big white TV unit in the corner. The TV's built in. In fact, it's screwed in to it. I built this whole thing without looking at the instructions. I am that good. It felt good. It was all at work. The other guys were all in bed. I was working away. And it was only as I climbed up the stairs in the house, and you look down from the stairs onto where the TV unit sits, that I wondered why the top of the unit was this minging, dirty brown color, while the rest was clean-cut navy white. I went downstairs and got the instruction out of the bin and noticed that there was indeed a nice white piece for the top. And being so quick on the uptake, I realized that I built the unit with the top on the bottom and the bottom on the top. And it turned out it was a pretty fundamental error, particularly when you've hardwired and fitted and screwed in the TV into it and got the TV off. I mean, I checked the channels were all good. Everything was plumbed in. And it took me another two to three hours till about three in the morning to take the thing to bits totally and build it properly according to the instructions. So next time you're at Anstruther, if you're there, have a look at that TV unit. And remember, it has a white top, not a brown one. Now, you might think that's a really stupid story, and you'd be right. But why then do so many of us probably all of us here, perhaps, treat prayer like I treat Ikea instructions. The Lord calls us to live our lives with prayer. The book of Psalms tells us that prayer is such a central thing to living. The parable of the persistent widow is yet another call from the Lord to be busy, to be serious, to be persistent about praying. Why then do we live like it's an optional extra, something that we can function pretty well by doing without? Or to go back to the IKEA TV, TV unit, something we might only draw upon, only get out of the bin when actually the whole thing has gone pear-shaped. Prayer is a statement about living with dependence on God. And actually, when we don't pray, we're saying in some really practical, earthy way, we're not really needing God in our lives. Yeah, at least the need of God is a theoretical thing, not a practical thing. 
The widow, this widow knew that she needed something from the unjust judge. She did not let up. She bothered him into acceding to her request. I suspect that for many of us, there's a huge contrast between the way that we live, really live, honestly live, and the widow who was so utterly aware that she needed the will, the grace, the decision from this unjust judge. One of the messages of this parable is stop trying to live your life independently of God, as if God was an accessory, an option, or a last resort. Instead, get switched on to the essential calling of prayer in our lives. I got to admit, I find it really frustrating when people stand at the front of a church and say stuff like that. Get switched on to the essential calling of prayer in our lives. I think it's all too easy for a preacher to make calls, arms, arms, calls to urgency, and leave folk, in this case, folk like you, with a genuine desire, a feeling, an imperative to really do something but actually offer little in the way of practical tools to help. Well, let me share a bit about my stuff in this area. And maybe there's something to be learned from it. Prayer isn't something that comes naturally to me at all. The whole idea of a daily quiet time that from my days in the Christian Union at Aberdeen University was right there with me has never, ever worked for me. In fact, it was either a source of guilt or it was just something to ignore and put to the side. Looking back down the years, it now feels a bit like trying to do a diet or a new fitness regime. You know, you start fresh with all the right intentions, but hey, oh, a couple of weeks later or a month later, you've started going to the gym less or whatever it is. You're off the diet, you're back eating whatever the rubbish you ate before, and so on. Some folk and this might be you, are blessed with a personality and a temperament that lends itself to prayer. We might think of folk who operate well within a rhythm of a routine, or other folk who are so deeply caring that that care calls them into prayer for others, or there's also folk who are more contemplative, so the discipline of prayer comes to them more naturally. You can justify a lot with this argument. But I guess I realized as a minister that I couldn't lead a church. I couldn't stand up on a Sunday morning exhorting folk to pray if I wasn't doing it myself. Well, I could do that, and I was doing that, but you know what I mean. It's, a, it's an authenticity thing. And then I got into cycling. Now, I usually cycle alone, or at least that's how it appears to other road users. But actually, I go cycling with Jesus. You didn't know Jesus was a cyclist, but now you do. I was reading Eugene Peterson's book called The Pastor, and he spoke about being able to pray as he, as he would run. And the whole rhythm, it takes 5, 10, 15 minutes to find this bodily rhythm, the routine. For me, it's just pedal, pedal, pedal. And something happens. Eugene Peterson described the same thing. It's the feeling of your heart going boom, boom, 
smartphone and your mind settles on those fleeting thoughts that steal our attention, or at least steal my attention, diminish. And you are much more in that moment on the saddle of a bike for me able to pray. I'm sitting at a table at the back there and Tess is knitting away. That's another example of something where someone does something that helps them listen or pray or whatever. Find your rhythm. We are heart, mind, soul, and body. So often we think prayer is a mental or a spiritual thing, but it's actually a physical thing as well. And I would guess for some of us, for a good number of us here, that's actually really important. So for all these years, I've been trying sporadically to pray while seated at rest, because that's what I've been told you did. I also have, to say a little bit more, a special log, a place, a fallen log in the woods behind the house. I think of that log as my prayer seat. I often go for a run with the dog in the early morning, and I spend time with the Lord in my cave, my log, my place of solitude. I've also started in the last couple of years using the daily office from the Northumbrian community. For daily office, just fill in some blank for yourselves. It's the first tab on my Google toolbar. I also have the Guardian newspaper on my Google toolbar. And having those two things presented me every morning with a dilemma. The daily office from the Northumbrian community on the one hand, or the Guardian on the other hand, both just a click away. I would often start by reading the Guardian, and you disappear down a rabbit hole. Trump said what? The Windrush scandal, you go on and on and on, and you're clicking on stuff, and you're going down links, and suddenly your head is a million miles away from territory, from a feeling, from a mood where you might pray. We all live with information overload. For you, it might be social media or whatever. But that thing that you have that distracts you from the serious business of praying, well, I've developed what you might call a rule of life. And if that sounds a bit monastic, then I guess it is. The stuff I've been talking about cycling, my log in the woods, and the Northumbrian daily office are all part of that rule of life. And I now have a basic daily rule. I, my rule is I always open up the daily office from the Northumbrian community before I do anything else online. It's really simple. But it's actually, for me, really important to work with the discipline Notice that word. We're called to be Jesus' disciples, and part of that is having the discipline to do it. And actually, if you want to hold me accountable for my prayer life, you just need to ask me one question of a day. Daily office or the guardian? That's the key question. And having worked out this rule of life, this discipline, I find that I'm on a journey to a much better place in terms of prayer the discipline of doing this more and more after over the last year has now become a habit. So in other words, discipline moves into habit, and habit eventually, I'm not there yet, forms lifestyle. There are moments when God has so clearly spoken into my life through it. 
We've had a personnel issue in the church over the summer that has been a tad stressful. I was meeting someone in the, in the church for lunch a few weeks back for a beer and a curry who knew this situation inside out. And actually, I was kind of looking forward to this lunch because it was going to be a huge stress dump to be able to talk about this thing, this issue with someone. And inevitably, we'd have got into behaviors surrounding the thing and the people side of things. And almost inevitably, it was going to turn into a moaning and a bitching session about this individual. And in the morning, in the daily office, I open it up because I go, daily officer, guardian, I'll choose the daily office. And it's just simply said, a reading from Proverbs, do not slander. And it's so interesting. You then realize, okay, because I was, I, I was kind of looking forward to this lunch. And God said, no, don't. Don't make that move. Go and have your beer and curry. Go and enjoy the lunch. Go and chill out. But don't do the thing you were going to do because it's wrong. God speaks when we get in touch. That's what prayer does. That's what connecting to God in prayer does. It actually has real, genuine, significant traction on my life and your life. Long time ago, I was around at someone's house who was a good friend. And they'd been at an interview for a job that day that they were desperate to get. Part of the story of their day was that they set off for the job interview later than they should. And they were really worried about not being able to find a parking space in the center of Aberdeen. So, just as they were arriving at the building where the interview was, they prayed for a parking space. And as they were passing the building, they needed to be in five minutes later for the job interview. Someone pulled out right in front of them, and they got the perfect space. According to them, the Lord had answered their prayer in an amazing way. What do you think? Is that a good way to live? Is it a good thing to pray for parking spaces like that? Let's pause for a minute or two, chat to the folk at your table, and actually decide whether it's a good thing to pray for the parking space. What would you do in that situation? Do you approve? Do you disapprove? Take two minutes to chat about praying for parking spaces under those circumstances. Okay, just a kind of, um, as an indicator, hands up those who would be kind of in the camp of praying for parking spaces. Yeah. Hands up those who have maybe a wee bit of an issue with this. Yeah. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, maybe the first thing to say about this story is don't try this at home. In other words, if you have an important job interview, just get there on time. Um, I have to admit that all those years ago, when I first heard that story, I was pretty annoyed. It was like what I really wanted to say, but it was outside the bounds of polite conversation. Right, so you are so chronically disorganized that you are late for your dream job interview. And then you have the gall, the cheek, to pray to God to get you out of the gigantic hole that you've just dug for yourself. Right, I get that. That was my real reaction to it. 
What I hadn't understood back then was that God is a God of grace. And actually, my friend was so completely right to pray for a parking space. For instance, earlier on in Luke's gospel, you'll have covered this um, a while back, I would guess, in your series on Luke. In chapter 11, we've got Jesus again teaching on prayer. This is where Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer. But he finishes off that section in Luke 11. Which of you, if your child asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So again, you've got this contrast between the kind of us lot who maybe are not as tender and kind as God and this benevolent, loving, kind, provident, providential Father in heaven. Fish, eggs, parking spaces, you know, they've got a lot in common. And yet, there is a problem here. Hey, if prayer worked like this, if it were like this all the time, everyone would be doing it, right? You know, it's like buying a lottery ticket when you already know what the winning numbers are going to be. You know, I need a parking place. I'll pray for a parking space. Voila, here comes the parking space. The whole world would be busy praying if that's how prayer worked. Actually, the parable of the persistent widow speaks to us of first before it speaks about answered prayer, speaks to us about unanswered prayer. It talks to us about the moments of angst when we pray, and it feels like nothing we say or think or feel is getting past the ceiling. There is literally no one at home in heaven to pick up the phone. What happens then when we have some longing or deeply held desire, and we pray and we pray, and we pray, and we pray some more because, hey, we're all persistent in this room, and nothing happens. This is actually a very common experience. When this is where your life is, you're actually treading a well-trodden path with the saints down the years. Our lives are rooted in the immediacy of the here and now. Will I find a parking space? Will I be offered this job? What should I be doing next Thursday? And in reality, those questions are not the deepest questions. God is much more interested in you personally, and whether you are kind, whether you're truthful, whether you're prayerful, than He is precisely what you're doing next Thursday. And whatever your answer, unanswered prayers or longings are just now, realize then that the sense of frustration, that between times where you've prayed but there has been no answer, is there to do soul work within you. It's there to teach. It's there to develop faith, to refine you, to transform you, to help you to get to know the good, good Father in heaven just a bit better. And also learn that as you mature in Christ, to give thanks for the closed doors in your life, the doors that you've prayed about, that you've longed for, that you've desired deeply, but that remain firmly shut. Give thanks for closed doors. Here's why. 
Back in the Old Testament, the people of Israel decided they wanted a king just like everyone else had. You read this at the beginning of Samuel. The Lord, through the, the Lord said through the prophet Samuel to the people, hey guys, this is not such a great idea, this king thing. Once you have a king, then this will happen, and this will happen. And these aren't good things, people. Really, my advice would be to stick with the situation we have right now. Don't ask for a king. And the folk said to Samuel, and therefore said to God, we have listened to all you've said, Samuel and God, and we've considered it deeply and very quickly, and we still want a king. And the Lord replies through Samuel, are you really, really, really sure that you want a king? Yes, give us a king. We want a king now. We're certain. And they got their king. And there's multiple long books in the Old Testament, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, which describe how badly the kingship went for the people in Israel. Sometimes our desires are not well aimed. And always, God knows better than we do about where our life is heading. So sometimes, we need to give thanks for the closed doors in our life. One last thought. The persistent widow's petition was, grant me justice. There is a real sense in these words of someone who has been wronged. And the painting of Lizzie and Brody over there speaks to us of a mother who's fought and persisted in getting her child restored to her. There is actually a whole world out there who can say with deep conviction that prayer, grant me justice. There are no cheap and easy answers to these situations that demand justice, whether they're refugee camps, prisons, situations of domestic violence. We still hear the words speaking into those situations, grant me justice bullying in the workplace, or foster care situations or child care situations that are just terribly messy and chaotic, at least in the mix, in the cauldron, in the short term. But the brilliant thing about this parable, this story, is it points us to a belief and a faith in a God who is not like the unjust judge, is not like the system that delivers bad results and wrong outcomes. Instead, it's about a story. Instead, we believe in a God who makes, in words from the Old Testament, justice flow like a river and righteousness like an ever-ending stream. And we're all called to play our own part in making this happen here on earth. That's actually why at the deepest level, Edith and I are foster carers. It's just the sense that just maybe, just maybe we can do a little bit that might make the world a better place and bless someone. So be a change maker. Whatever your situation is, your position, your relationships, your, friends, your friendships, live so as to make a difference. Prayer is so important to that. And as you do this, you find your life, your prayer life, but your life as a whole 
entering into a rhythm like a dance, a heartbeat which is mirrored on the Lord Jesus. The one who weeps at suffering and injustice here on earth still weeps and who has given everything of himself to bring healing. There is no better way to live. And sometimes, sometimes, as you heard in that video clip, we do find the ending to it all. We do get some sort of closure to stuff here on earth. Ian talked about that family where there was no Disney ending for the folk that he knew. But here we realize that we can stand and make a difference. There is the painting, Lizzie and Brody back together again. There is that profound moment for myself and my family where we're sent the video of this kid walking. You can't explain, you can't touch, you can't convey the joy that that moment brings. So there are moments where, if you like, the cloud, the veil parts, and we see just a little bit of heaven on earth. God sometimes grants us that privilege. Live in such a way as to find the rhythm of the dance that you may share in those moments too. I'm going to close just by reading Jesus' manifesto statement in Luke chapter 4. Just a beautiful statement about justice, about peace that he takes from Isaiah chapter 61. These were the words that Jesus chose to describe his own ministry and his own life. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Father, with a deep sense of gratitude, we give thanks that you are nothing like that unjust judge. And give each one of us here a deep, deep sense of your profound love, your affirmation, that you can see into each one of our hearts and you love us in a way that we cannot conceive with an intensity and a passion that belongs only to you. Thank you for that. And thank you for prayer. That means, however it works for us, that you give us to stay in touch, to deeply remain rooted in you, to have our own lives, our characters, our hearts shaped reformed, remade in your image. Thank you for the story of Lizzie and Brody and that painting and all it symbolizes and brings to us, how it speaks to you as the good, good father, as we see in the eyes of a mother, the love for her child. And we pray your blessing on Lizzie and Brody, not just today, but in all the days, the months, the years that lie ahead. Bless them and keep them as a family. And Lord, for all these situations that we've touched upon today, that we've encountered to do with the social care system, 
for social workers, for those involved in the legal side, for foster carers, for parents who have had children taken away, and Lord, for the children themselves. May you be in that place. May you be in those situations. For politicians, who policymakers who make big decisions that affect the lives of thousands, we pray for wisdom and grace. For those on children panels who weigh these matters, give them the wisdom of Solomon. And Lord, as we turn to our own lives, we ask that you would turn our hearts, that we really would have a desire to get our act together when it comes to prayer, to find our own rhythm, to enter into our own dance, to take it seriously as the privilege it really is. Lord, thank you that you are you for all the glory and the peace and the wonder that you speak into our lives. We give you thanks. In this moment of quiet, Lord, we bring our own prayers to you about stuff in our own lives, about stuff we've heard or thought about today as we commit ourselves again to you in this moment of quiet.